0: I was working in a coffee shop in Boston to, like, help pay rent while I was training for the trials, and so people kept joking.
1: They're like, oh, yeah, she just took a two-hour coffee break and went and ran the Olympic trials marathon. (laughs) (laughs) On the Podium is back with more Olympians and Paralympians sharing their journeys to the top. On the Podium from the BBC World Service. Listen now wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. There have always been those deep, fundamental questions that we're all fascinated by. Who we are, where we've come from, what kind of legacy we might leave for our children. Scientists obsessed with these sorts of questions might feel the pull towards genetics, the study of our genes, those fascinating molecules that encode everything about who we are. Genetics can tell us why we are the way we are, why we look the way we do, think the way we think, even what kind of diseases we might be likely to suffer from. And, of course, genetics can also tell us where we came from, linking us to our ancestors via inherited strands of DNA, and it gives us tantalising clues about what we'll pass on to our children. My guest today is a molecular geneticist whose life's work has been to unravel the way particular genes are switched on or off, and how the chain of genetic inheritance works – Anne Ferguson-Smith is Arthur Balfour Professor of Genetics and Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research at the University of Cambridge. More specifically, she's a developmental geneticist, exploring the very first moments of life as embryonic organisms form. And she tries to unravel the other non-genetic, or should I say epigenetic, factors that control what our genes do for us. Yet she wasn't always destined to be a scientist. She says she was a bad student for much of her early life and believes that embracing failure is an essential part of being a good scientist. Anne Ferguson-Smith, welcome to The Life Scientific.
0: Thank you for having me, Jim. Very good to be here.
1: Now, you spent your career working in this fascinating field of epigenetics. I think most of us have a pretty good understanding of what genetics is, that who we are, how we behave is encoded in the DNA in every cell in our body. But epigenetics is slightly different. You've described it as genetics with knobs
0: on. Yes, that's right. Epigenetics means literally on top of the DNA, on top of genetics. So our DNA is a double-stranded length of A's and G's and C's and T's that code for the proteins that make our cells work. But actually, our DNA is not linear like that. It's packaged into chromosomes, into bundles. And epigenetic modifications, that is, chemical modifications that sit on the DNA, play a key role in that organisation.
1: Genes, as we know, are heritable, for example.
0: We, We inherit them from both our parents. Are epigenetic traits also heritable? Well, that's a very good question. So as you know, our cells all contain the same DNA constituents. However, the epigenome, the epigenetic modifications are different, such that the genes that are expressed in a muscle cell to make the proteins that are important for muscle are accessible and turned on, whereas those genes are inaccessible in liver. There's a different set of modifications that enable liver genes to be expressed Mm. properly in liver cells.
1: Now, as we'll hear, and you've had a very successful career. You've also talked about the importance of failure in science. In fact, you've said you've often failed and that you've been much improved because of your failures.
0: Yes, I'm not risk averse, shall we say. I like to try things and if they don't work, that's all right. Um, And that, I think, grew from when I was a student. It took me a long time to mature, shall we say. I went to university when I was 17 And to be honest, the light bulb hadn't really turned on yet. Mm. I didn't really know what direction I was going to go in. And actually, I failed my second year of university. It wasn't until I reached my third and fourth year that I really learned how to study. And I really appreciated the joy and the wonder of experimental research. But that took a while.
1: And Ferguson Smith, you were born in the US in Baltimore, where your father was working as an academic in 1961. But the family moved to Scotland very quickly when you were a baby and you grew up in Glasgow. Tell me about your parents. How did they meet?
0: Well, my parents met in Baltimore in the United States. My father is Scottish and went over to the United States to do some work in a lab in Johns Hopkins University. And my mother, who is Polish, had emigrated to uh, Baltimore after the war around 1950. She's a remarkable woman, my mother, actually. So she had grown up in Poland and during the 1944 Warsaw uprising had been captured by the Germans and actually taken with her family to a labour camp in Germany. And she and her family lived in Germany for six years before emigrating to uh, the United States. And she was a teenager when they, when they moved. And after a few years, she was paying her way through college and working in Johns Hopkins, where she met my father. Right, right. So she had started out as an administrator, working part-time. And actually, she's from quite a, an artistic family. Her father was an architect. Her mother was an artist, a painter. And so she took those artistic skills and started to apply them to photomicroscopy, which was an evolving area at the time. My father was actually, he's a medical geneticist, and he was learning how to study chromosomes in this lab in the United States. And so he and my mother got together there. It was funny because he had an MG sports car that he had taken over on a, on a boat when he moved to the United States. And um, I think it was a bit of a babe magnet and my mother fell for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were very close to your mother growing up, I believe. Absolutely,
0: yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, my father was working quite hard and my mother took me everywhere and I learned a lot from her.
1: Mm. And you grew up with three siblings in the West End of Glasgow. What was your childhood like?
0: Oh, it was very happy. We're a very close family, although my my siblings and, and I are quite spread out. There's 15 years between me and my youngest sister. A lot of my time was spent actually as a competitive swimmer. My sister and I used to swim a lot. Uh, I have to say my sister was much better than I was. She actually <laughs> swam for Scotland. Uh, I'm not quite as competitive. And actually that took up a lot of my time, perhaps just detracted a bit from my uh, my studies, shall we say. In fact, I didn't do much studying at all when hey, I was oh, growing up. Hence the
1: bad student <laughs> comment I made in the yes. It's true then. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, a life of science, let alone, you know, other academic subjects, wasn't necessarily an obvious path for you to take.
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, my father is an academic scientist. He's a, a clinical geneticist. And in fact, I remember seeing my first chromosome, in fact, at quite a young age, I must have been under 10. And and I looked down the microscope and saw this amazing structure that my dad said, carried the genes that controlled the identity of that cell and he talked to me a little bit about DNA then. I remember that and it was quite remarkable but, but actually he comes from a medical family and it was always assumed that I was going to be a doctor because right. although I was a bad student I wasn't daft. I mean I, was, I did okay at school and it was assumed that I would be a doctor but actually I didn't get into medicine mm. and, uh, and when I finished school I had to decide really what I wanted to do and at that time the field of molecular biology and recombinant DNA technology was emerging the idea that you could isolate DNA and study it and I thought that's quite interesting and I went to Glasgow University and studied molecular biology.
1: Well in 1983 newly graduated and fully invested in this new world of molecular biology you decided to go to Yale's Department of Biology to do a PhD to study what are called homeoboxes. Could you explain what homeoboxes are?
0: So a homeobox is a small piece of DNA that is found in many genes that are important for the development of the body axis across multiple species.
1: And by body axis, you mean head, torso, legs, tail?
0: That's right. The patterning of the body. Right. It had been discovered that mutations in some of these genes in the fruit fly drosophila caused body parts to be formed in the wrong places. And these mutations had resulted in flies that had um, extra sets of wings or legs in the place of the antennae. And that was the first clue, really, that these genes were important in mm. making a body plan. And my PhD supervisor had spent some time working in a fruit fly lab on sabbatical and had come back with a piece of those genes. And so he brought that 180 base pairs from fruit flies back to the lab and a small group of us started looking for similar sequences in the mouse and in the human. There was a crowd that were looking in the mouse and I was trying to find these genes in humans to ask whether perhaps there were a similar set of genes that controlled the body plan in humans. And to do that... The same sequence of letters. That same sequence of letters. So it's about asking for conservation of a DNA sequence between a fly and a human. So that's asking quite a lot actually. And what we had to do was to separate those two strands and then ask those separated strands to find the complementary sequence in the human genome that we'd also separated into single-stranded pieces. So it was sort of like um, a magnet, sort of like asking that fly piece to bind to the opposite strand in the human genome like a magnet.
1: And it's because the piece of fly DNA that has this sequence on it that you're interested in is able to find the complementary sequence in humans. That's what's telling you that we also have in our DNA That's these terminal right. these right. boxes, these sequences.
0: That's right. And then we can do some similar DNA interrogation experiments to understand these sequences. Right.
1: Because I'm psychic, I can tell what listeners are thinking now. You know, they're, they're imagining Jeff Goldblum in, in that horror movie, <laughs> The Fly, you know, cross-species hybridization. But to be clear, you are not... By linking two bits of DNA, you're not making human-fly hybrids. No, no. Hybrids. In fact, this was
0: all done in a test tube and on pieces of filter paper and outside right. of the body, outside of cells, in flasks and water baths. Right. And that taught us some very interesting new concepts because what we discovered was that there are lots of these genes, and they're organised in the same way that they're organised in the fruit fly in a row. The ones at one end are responsible for regulating the head end of the body, and the ones at the other end are responsible for regulating the tail end of the body. They're switched on one at a time as the body is beginning to form. There are many more of these genes in humans, actually multiple clusters of these genes, but they're all organised in this uh, head-to-tail kind way.
1: I mean, this is your PhD work, but it was really cutting edge stuff. Did you appreciate how important it was at the time?
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we did. And, and of course, it wasn't just us who were doing this. There were colleagues all around the world who were interested in this same question. And, and it was a very, very exciting time.
1: Well, doing your PhD, it wasn't all about the science. You were also throwing yourself into the Connecticut live music scene, I gather.
0: Well, Yes. So my time in the United States, those were very formative years for me. Of course, it was my first time seriously away from home for long periods of time. At Yale, I was fortunate to meet some really remarkably smart people. And these Mm. friends, you know, uh, had a whole different life experience, an American life experience. One of the first people I met actually in my dormitory was from California, who had his coffee flown over from San Francisco, had a stereo the size of a house uh, (laughs) and uh, uh, really interesting and different people. You also
1: got involved with a group of people referred to as deadheads.
0: Oh, well, yes. So actually this, this chap from California who I met said, oh, Anne, I have to introduce you to the Grateful Dead. And so he, <laughs> um, he bought some tickets to see the Grateful Dead who were coming to Connecticut. I have to say, when I first heard them, I thought that they were a bit strange. It took a while to get used to them. They're a live music band. And as it happened, in the biology department, there were people who also were deadheads. I was passing one on the corridor one day and he said, oh, I really want to go to Grateful Dead and I don't have any tickets. And I said, oh, I've got some spare tickets. And actually, uh, that was how I ended up meeting a new group of people who played an important role in my personal development, shall we say, because we became very close friends. They were physical scientists, mostly, and engineers. My degree had focused very much on biology. And so I got a a feeling for a different kind of way of thinking, a different kind of discipline. And of course, we listened to lots of of Grateful Dead music. And in fact, I met my husband at a Grateful Dead concert.
1: He was also a deadhead, was he?
0: Well, he was at Caltech with the people I was hanging out with at Yale. And we bumped into him at a Grateful Dead concert and uh, we started to hang out.
1: And Ferguson Smith, after your PhD, you came back to the UK, to Cambridge and started working in another exciting new research area, thanks to a newly discovered process called genomic imprinting.
0: So this was quite remarkable. When I was a graduate student, I read a review about this newly discovered process called genomic imprinting, and it absolutely blew my mind. So, um, as you know, we have a copy of every gene in our cells that comes from mother and another copy that is inherited from our father. And for most of these genes, both of them are being used. However, for imprinted genes, only one of these two copies is being used. So the DNA is there, it's present. It's exactly the same on the two parental chromosomes that are inherited from the egg and the sperm, but only one of them is turned on. So this was very, very strange to me because it suggested that there was something on top of the DNA that was regulating whether a gene was being used or not. And this turned out to be epigenetic modifications. So the two chromosomes are packaged differently, even though they're genetically identical. So, for example, Mm. there's a gene called the insulin-like growth factor 2 gene, which is very important for the growth of the embryo. And when you were in your mother's womb, you were only expressing the copy that you had inherited from your father. Your mother's copy was turned off. And it means that if you have a mutation in that gene, then you're not making any of that growth factor, despite the fact that you have a spare copy. You're born abnormally small. But more importantly, if you inappropriately turn on the copy on the maternally inherited chromosome that's not used, you end up making a double dose of this growth factor. And that's very bad for you. It can cause cancer. So it's quite an important process. It doesn't happen to all of our genes. There's only about 200 of our genes that are regulated in this way. But what was interesting to me was the fact that this was something that was on top of the DNA. This wasn't about... Gene regulation by the sequence of the DNA, but it was about gene regulation by something that was acting on that DNA and could tell the difference between the copy that came from mum and the copy that came from dad. Mm. Now, we now know that the whole genome is regulated by epigenetic modifications. Now, not in a parental origin-specific manner like imprinted genes, but we were able to use genomic imprinting as a paradigm, as an example of how epigenetic modifications could turn genes on or turn genes Mm. off.
1: I just want to sort of move out of the lab for a moment because it's around this time that you made the decision to start a family. Did that slow you down at all?
0: Well, I always knew I wanted to be a parent. This was not easy, shall we say. It was at a time when there weren't lots of maternity benefits for women who were having careers. But actually, I was very fortunate in that I had a very supportive husband who was actually very excited by the work that I was doing and was very committed to contributing to bringing up the family. Uh, He picked the kids up from school. He was a wonderful father, actually, and, and, and very supportive, both of my career and the shared responsibility of bringing up family.
1: This is in the mid to late 90s. You know, going back a few decades, it was still, to some extent still is, male-dominated academic environment, which I imagine wouldn't have been particularly sympathetic to the challenges for you balancing work and home life. But that's not what you found, was it?
0: I suspect I'm a bit, I'm not really a rules person. So, I mean, I just actually did what was right for me. So I, I felt very strongly that being a good mum was being a happy mum. With my first child, I took a little bit of time off then my husband took some time off and then I, we went, I went back to work quite quickly. With my second child, I had my lab already. I, I was a faculty member at the university and I was able to come in. I used to carry my, my daughter in a, in a laundry basket, actually, <laughs> uh, into my office. I would come in several times a week. What, for a smuggle little... her in? Order. Well, actually, there w- <laughs> it, the, it, was, it was much easier in those days because there weren't, Nowadays, you're not, if you're on maternity leave, you're not allowed to come into work. Uh, because you're not insured. In the olden days, that wasn't the case. And so I was able to bring my daughter in in a laundry basket, hang out with my group, (laughs) um, spend a bit of time and then go home and look after my daughter. And she also uh, had very good nursery provision within Cambridge also. So I could go to the lab, then I could go to the nursery, breastfeed, go back to work. Um, We managed it.
1: (laughs) Once you got your permanent position in the anatomy department at Cambridge with your own lab, you got to work on epigenetic inheritance. You mentioned at the top of the programme that while our genes are inherited from parents, epigenetics, these these chemical instructions that determine which genes are switched on, which genes are switched off, are not usually inherited, except in this unusual case of genomic imprinting. Why are they not inherited in the same way as the genes?
0: So that's a really important question. So there are two waves of genome-wide epigenetic erasure and reconstruction that happen during the lifetime of an individual. The first one happens during the development of the eggs and sperms when the epigenetic slate that is established in the cells that are going to give rise to eggs and sperms is wiped clean and basically your DNA is epigenetically naked and then it starts to build new epigenetic modifications that are specific to an egg or specific to sperm. Mm -hmm. And then the second wave of epigenetic erasure and reconstruction happens immediately upon fertilisation. So that egg is fertilised by a sperm, and then immediately the epigenetic slate is wiped clean again. And as that early embryo develops, you re-establish new epigenetic marks that are specific to the particular lineages that the the embryo is developing. So
1: these instructions that tell what gene to switch on or off are not copied down from the parents they are That's recreated right. as the cell
0: That's right. In develops. fact, in fact it seems that epigenetic inheritance is not supposed to happen. Right. The marks that are put on in a parent are designed to be removed and mm. reconstructed in the next generation.
1: But you did explore other potential examples of epigenetic inheritance. Tell me about these fascinating mice experiments.
0: So despite the fact that the epigenome is erased and reconstructed from one generation to the next, there is a sort of dogma in the field that suggests that the environment talks to the DNA via the epigenome and that those marks can be transmitted from one generation to the next. So we set out to try and and look for that, trying to see whether the impact of environmental insult could be felt epigenetically from one generation to the next. And we worked with colleagues in um, in Boston who had developed a model of in utero undernutrition in mice where a pregnant female was calorically restricted during pregnancy. And this resulted in offspring that were born small and that went on to get pre-diabetic symptoms. But interestingly... Both males and females that were born small, if they had offspring, even though they were fed a normal diet, they also had offspring that were born small and had pre-diabetic symptoms, suggesting that, in fact, there was a transmission Mm. of an adverse outcome from one generation to the next. So I think it's clear and there's quite a lot of evidence that adverse outcomes in one generation can be evident in subsequent generations. But the question is, what is the mechanism that makes that happen? We were unable to find, actually, the perpetuation of a DNA methylation signature to the next generation in this model, suggesting that maybe something else might be going on.
1: In recent years, Anne, you've been working on what some refer to as the dark matter of the genome. I mean, it sounds intriguing, but of course it's not the same as the dark matter out in space that holds galaxies together.
0: That's right, Jim. Some people call it junk DNA, actually. Actually, junk DNA is not a bad analogy because junk is something that you put in the attic that you might want to use later. And much of it, we don't know what it does, but it has the potential to be useful. And this is one of the things that we're trying to understand. So half of our DNA is made up of sequences that are repeated over and over and over and over again. Many of them look like viruses and many of them have the potential to activate and move around in the genome. And one of the three functions of epigenetic modifications is to target these particular repetitive sequences. Where
1: did these sequences come from?
0: Well, they're often referred to as parasitic elements. Some of them have come from viruses. Many of them then self-replicate and reintegrate, so they self-propagate within the genome, and they have the potential to cause mutation. But they also have the potential to regulate the host genes that they've jumped in next to. And normally, that would be targeted by the epigenetic machinery and shut down. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And those genes that are sitting next to these uh, repetitive sequences have the potential to be misregulated. And what we noticed was that this happens differently in different individuals. And so your epigenetic uh, modifications at these sequences might look different to mine, and that might contribute to the traits and outcomes that are associated with the genes that these sequences are sitting next to.
1: Well, now you are Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research at Cambridge University, a big responsibility That, of course, inevitably means you spend less time on your own research these days. You're also president of the Genetics Society. So you're very outward facing, promoting science more widely. What's inspired this change of direction for you?
0: I'm not sure if it's a change in direction. I've always been interested in sticking my nose in other people's business, perhaps. The science has been very good to me and I feel that I have a responsibility to actually reach out and interact with other scientists, in particular, contribute to the development of young scientists to really make conceptual advances that can themselves be translated and applied uh, to Mm. the benefit of society and our economy, of
1: course. Do, Do you think the research culture, particularly in universities, needs to change?
0: Yes, I think it does need to change. I think that we need to be recognizing that anybody can do science. A research environment is no longer a bastion for ivory towered academics, but actually can bring people from all different kinds of experiences, all different kinds of skills and expertise. And that is actually very important. The more porosity that we have between our research environments and expertise outside the research environment becomes very important. Mm-hmm. And
1: this passion for trying to excite the general public, trying to excite young people into science, do you feel there's any connection with the younger Anne, the swimmer, the bad student who wasn't particularly bothered about science?
0: Uh, I think there is, actually. So I think that, you know, it's tough being a young person today, a lot of pressures everywhere. And often there are pressures to succeed. And in actual fact, you learn more from making mistakes than you do from success, at least in my experience. So try stuff, mm. learn from your experience and move forward. Throughout your
1: career, Anne, you do seem to have jumped from one Exciting, cutting-edge area to another. Almost as though you have this ability to sniff out what the new, exciting, sexy new field is going to be. But you say you let the science tell you where to go, not the other way yeah. around. What What do you mean by that?
0: It's quite remarkable, actually. I don't know what I'm going to be doing in five years' time, or I've never really known what I've been doing in five years' time. I've let the DNA guide us. As to the questions that we need to be answering.
1: I believe it was your son who persuaded you with an analogy with dancing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a great dancer, actually. <laughs> so I really love listening to music, but unfortunately I'm not a great dancer. And one time when my son was very small, he said to me, oh, um, mother, don't try and control the music, let the music control you. And that's actually very much how my science has been. I've let the science sort of take me by the hand and take me on a journey without trying to control it. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's rewarded me. It's made it very easy for me to identify exciting and important directions of travel because I'm able to listen to what the molecular genetics, the rhythm rhythm of molecular (laughs) genetics, exactly.
1: And Ferguson-Smith, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific.
0: Thank you. What in the World is the podcast exploring the stories and the issues that you need to know about. 93% of fast fashion workers aren't getting paid a living wage. The former president is accused of trying to overturn democracy.
1: How do elite athletes train in and around their menstrual cycle?
0: Understand more, feel better with What in the World from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts and hit subscribe.